Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rudzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Ellen Galinsky, the co-founder and president of the Families and Work Institute, the chief science officer at the Bezos Family Foundation, and the executive director of Mind in the Making, a national program promoting life skills that has reached millions of people across the country. She's a past president of the National Association for the Education of Young Children and has written and contributed to more than 100 books and reports, including Mind in the Making, the seven essential life skills every child needs. Ellen Galinsky, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. Well, and it's our huge honor to have you here. As we just heard, you hold many roles, Ellen. You're an author, a scientist, a leader of several organizations. And before we get into all of that, we want to know what's the common thread? How do you describe your professional mission when people ask what you do? What set you down that path? I describe myself as a research adventurer because I've always been curious and I've always followed my questions. From my very first job, I was a teacher. I knew that I wanted to work on behalf of children and not be a teacher forever, but I felt the best way to learn about teaching was through actually being a teacher. So at Bank Street College, I started to wonder about, we know what we think we're teaching children, but what are they learning and how will we find out? And on the basis of that, I got a grant from the Ford Foundation to continue to write and do research. And I've been doing both ever since, from looking at what makes exemplary childcare, my book, The New Extended Family, to looking at how parents grow and change, the six stages of parenthood, and then my most recent adventures in looking at young children and then adolescents and what helps them thrive. All of my work has been fueled by curiosity, by wondering, and by striving to find out. Ellen, around the turn of the millennium, you became concerned that too many young people were dropping out and otherwise disengaging from learning. Can you tell us exactly what it was that you were seeing? What did the problem look like, and how did you go about investigating it? In the late 90s, I was doing a series of studies that went out to young people and asked them about how they saw the important issues that they were facing. And I wanted to do one on learning. I always started with children or youth themselves. I asked them what they wanted to know about the subject before I went deeply into the research and before I designed a study myself. In this case, I asked children about learning and they were not engaged. They were not excited. And if I asked them about not learning, I got a lot more energy and that really concerned me. Now we know that only about 40 to 60 percent of young people are engaged in learning. My study showed that before the pandemic, 56 percent. So it's not high. I think it's similar to what you write about in your book about how curiosity seems to decline. We're born curious. And then you cite studies that show that older children don't ask questions very much in school. We seem to turn that off. And my question became, what can we do to keep the fire for children's learning burning in their eyes? Children are born wanting to know, to understand, to see, to taste, to touch everything. 
and we're doing something to turn that off. And that was the question that has fueled the last 22 years and led to my book, Mind in the Making. So, Ellen, let's talk about that incredible book. It's essential reading for anyone who works with children in any capacity. It's also a framework for what you call the seven essential life skills, and those seven being focus and self-control, perspective-taking, communicating, making connections, critical thinking, taking on challenges, and self-directed, engaged learning. So why these seven? Of all of the skills to focus on, what made these seven stand out as being particularly essential? I had been looking in different disciplines of understanding young children's development and learning. I was focused on what can we do to keep them engaged in learning. And I began to see that a certain set of skills were called different things in different areas of research. Theory of mind was if you were looking at social development. It was the capacity of children to be able to understand what someone else likes and doesn't like, what someone else feels and what someone else thinks, and how those differ from what you may like or feel or think. And that's the skill of perspective taking. And research is very siloed. So if you're looking at the development of literacy, that's what you're looking at, or the development of numeracy. Or if you're looking at social or cognitive development, those are all different. But I can see the pattern across this landscape. So these seven skills emerged from the research that I was doing. And what bound them together were what's called executive functions of the brain. Those are attention regulation skills that enable us to use what's in our working memory to solve problems. These capacities enable us to think flexibly, to be able to change in response to changing circumstances and to not go on automatic, but to stop. Reflection is paying attention to our own thinking. Those come out of cognitive neuroscience. Some people say that they're soft skills. They're hardly soft skills. They're neurocognitive attention regulation skills. They're responsible for everything we learn. They're sometimes described as the orchestra conductor, or one of my friends called it a, a guy in a pinstripe suit bossing you around in your brain. The part of the brain that pulls together your social, emotional, physical, cognitive capacities so that you can use the knowledge that you have to reason, to think, to do anything intentionally to solve problems. Ellen, for the past few years, you've been at work on another book called The Breakthrough Years, which you describe as mind in the making growing up because it covers young people from about age nine through age 18. Can you give us a quick preview of what you found? I've pulled together the latest research in neuroscience, developmental research across other academic disciplines, as well as two studies that I've done of about 2009 through 19 year olds and their parents, and then a behavioral study looking at executive function skills. Again, I use civic science. So it combines voices of young people and their parents, as well as research. And I've slightly changed the deck of skills. They're all still executive function skills, but with older children. A couple of the innovative things about the book, I look at developmental needs. They're expressed differently in different times of our development, but they're the need to belong, the need to be supported, the need to have some say over what we do the need to be treated with respect, the need to master things, in, in other words, to be competent, but also to be challenged, to be stretched so that we can learn, to figure out who we are and to find ways to find meaning and to give back. So those are five basic 
needs that I see. And I think that that's the groundwork that we as parents, as educators, as anyone who works with young people need to create in our relationships with them. You can want to learn something very much, but if you're not feeling safe, if you're not feeling welcomed, you're less likely to learn it. So that's a contribution of the book. I've also come up with an expansion of mindsets that I heard from parents and from children. I ask kids the most important parenting skills. Uh, There's just so much wisdom, both from the research and from young people themselves. This is Greg Baer, along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Ellen Galinsky, the best-selling author, executive director of Mind in the Making, and co-founder and president of the Families and Work Institute. So Ellen, in addition to your books and the framework you've developed, Mind in the Making is also a program of the Bezos Family Foundation, where you also serve as chief science officer. Can you tell us about some of Mind in the Making's work? What are some of the ways your program bridges the gap between your research and its on-the-ground applications? For me, books are always a platform for action. I always think of research as being incredibly important, but if it doesn't lead to something that we can do and want to do, then why bother in a sense? Uh, I'd like to think that our lives are better lived if they're informed both by our own wisdom and by research. And so the joy of being a part of the Bezos Family Foundation is that we are able to create all kinds of materials that we can give to people for free. And we've developed training program, and it's one of the few training programs that brings child development research to you. We filmed this research, so it's like virtual field trips to the labs of researchers. And we're about to release an online curriculum late this summer. We've developed a series of books that we recommend for children and how to read them in ways that promote executive function skills. We've developed opportunity mindset tips. This is with first book where we did a survey of 2000 parents and teachers and we took the things that were challenging, particularly during COVID and afterwards. And we used the research to frame responses, but thinking of a challenge as an opportunity to promote a skill. We worked with Mount Sinai Parenting Center to adapt the research knowledge so that it's a part of well child visits. And we created uh, Keystones of Development, a training program that's being used by almost uh, 70% of all teaching hospitals for pediatric residents and working with foundation teams to create Vroom. Those are tips for children birth through five that take everyday moments and turn them into learning moments. So we've been very busy creating and testing materials to see if we can create things that people can use in their everyday lives to bring the fire into children's eyes when they're learning. Ellen, you've already answered this in part, and I'm hopeful you'll offer a little bit more color too. So when you think about how educators are making use of your recommendations now versus 10 or 12 years ago when your book first came out, what really excites you? What do you see as the great potential in applying mind in the making? If you know, as I do, the importance of executive functions, if you look at what employers are looking for in the workforce when they're reading job applicants' resumes, they're looking for people who can work in teams. They're looking for people who can communicate well. They're looking for people who take initiative. They're looking for people who can solve problems and think analytically. So life skills that Mind in the Making teaches, we've seen 
amazing things like in Providence through an I-3 grant from the government, all of the families and the educators who worked with pre-K through third grade kids learned about Mind in the Making. It was the grandmothers and the aunts and the uncles and the older siblings, everyone who was an older person who had a role in the life of that child in school. And it really made a big difference in engaging families in their children's learning. The National Head Start Association uses Mind in the Making. We're in a number of different states like Nevada and Mississippi. Mississippi, during the pandemic, they are making documentaries that share the skills and then have discussion groups with parents. So there's enormous appetite and big creativity. So I hope people will go to mindinthemaking.org or vroom, V-R-O-O-M.org and take advantage of these materials. Ellen, we are recording this in what we hope is a late and possibly near final stage of this deadly pandemic. COVID-19 has impacted every aspect of our lives, including the way we work. There was a mass migration from office buildings to Zoom. There was the so-called great resignation with millions of people leaving their jobs and looking for work elsewhere. And of course, there are still challenges facing essential workers and low-wage workers, which unfortunately are two groups with lots of overlap. Throw school closures into the mix, and it's easy to see why so many families have had such a difficult time over the past few years. And you spent a significant portion of your career studying work and its impact on children and families. Given what we've experienced with COVID and your role as co-founder and president of the Families and Work Institute, how do you hope this moment will reshape work for adults? And more specifically, how might we reimagine work so that adults can keep the needs of young people front and center? It's actually rare when I'm talking about children and their development that I get asked about work. Work is siloed away from children, and yet the pandemic showed us that that could not be true. If there's anything that the pandemic taught us is that engagement is critical, that you can't think about children and their learning without thinking of the family, that teachers realize that they need to be partners with parents much more so than before, that parents began to appreciate what a really hard job being a teacher is and how much knowledge it calls for. But what I hope in terms of reimagining work is that People can work productively and flexibly. People can self-manage in good workplaces. And yet we still seem to not understand that. We also don't seem to understand that work affects children. When we're studying children and their development, I can't think of almost any study that includes the work environment. And yet work in Yuri Bronfenbrenner's scheme is the critical influence on children. It's the values that parents bring home. And as kids told me in the book that I wrote called Ask the Children, if we've had a bad day at work, it tends to come home. That That's the one thing that kids want to change most. It isn't more time with us necessarily. It's that we're less stressed and tired. That's what kids wish for. And just like meeting basic developmental needs for children, adults have those same developmental needs in the workplace. We call it an inclusive workplace. In a paper that just came out, we were able to look at adults who had gone through a serious stress in their life, an adverse experience, and about 50% of the workforce had, and these were COVID-like events. Someone became sick or died, and the person was caring for other people, or people lost their jobs, or just the disruption that COVID caused. And what we found is that if employees have a say in making decisions, in other words, they have some autonomy, when they have a culture of respect and trust, when they have support at work and they feel that they belong, 
those ingredients are more important than having flexibility. It's how your boss treats you if a family issue arises. So if we could begin to change the workplace in these non-cost ways, we could make a big difference. A study that MIT did just found that toxic work environment was 10 times more important in whether people left their jobs than their level of compensation. Well, that was a duh for me because we found that in 1992. So Ellen, if we can turn for a moment to talk about Fred Rogers, you've been very generous in referencing the book that Ryan and I co-authored called When You Wonder You're Learning. You had an opportunity to work with Fred Rogers. You were connected to him. You were a parent expert for a TV series of his called Mr. Rogers Talks to Parents. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with Fred Rogers and your relationship to him? It was just an incredible experience to be with him intensively, to work with him on those series. But more importantly, we became friends. In fact, I was an advisor to the center at St. Vincent's College and helped Fred think about what his legacy would be. He had asked me to do a speech that he was invited to do when he found out he had stomach cancer and he was hoping that he would recover to be able to do it. I used to fly to West Virginia where I'm from through Pittsburgh and I would always catch an early flight to Pittsburgh and then leave the airport, run into see Fred and Bill Eisler and the team at the neighborhood and then go back and get on the plane and go home. And uh, I did that for years. So much of what Fred did on that show is really an application of the learning sciences. And given that so much of your career, Ellen, has been focused on translating research into practice, we're curious about what you might have learned from Fred about how to do that. Did he influence your thinking in that regard? Fred was, above everything else, a listener. He says listening is where love begins. So I think of myself as a research adventurer. He thought of himself as a seeker of truth, of compassion, of acceptance, of understanding emotions. And he worked with Margaret McFarland on every single program. I think probably the most rigorous interview I've ever had in my life was with Margaret McFarland. She asked me about every controversial issue in the world and how I would answer. I felt she knew me probably better than anyone else. So what I learned from him was, again, the importance of listening. I mean, my work has always been based on listening, but he inspired me to listen better. And Joanne always says that if people stopped him on the street, he would end up asking them questions and then listening to them. And I know when he would come to visit my office or when he came to the Family Center at Bank Street, which I helped to found, he was always learning about something. He was an ongoing learning, and in that way he inspired me and all of us. So, Ellen, thinking about Fred as a learner, what do you think he learned from you? Fred learned a few things from me. The first thing is his temptation in the show when we were on air. Someone would ask a question from the audience, and he would inevitably turn to me and say, Ellen, what do you think? And I would know that people had asked that question to hear first from what he thought. So I would turn to him and say, well, I'll tell you in a moment, Fred, but let's start with what you think. <laughs> and Because <laughs> everyone would clutch themselves when he would turn to me, and now I knew to turn it back to him and then uh, to go back. So maybe he learned this is a joke, but maybe he learned that he could answer the question first and that I could build on what he said. I think he learned a lot about work and family life and about childcare for me. And 
to help think through the answers that he was facing. The most dramatic example is when Saturday Night Live was making fun of him, when Eddie Murphy was spoofing him. And I came one of those trips when I flew in from New York to Pittsburgh, left my suitcase at the airport, ran to see Fred and team. And he took my hand and he took me into his office and he turned on the television and he showed me some of the spoofs that he had taped. And he looked at me and he said, Ellen, why would people do such a thing? Why would they make fun of someone? And it wasn't even personal. He was just trying to understand why someone who is trying to do good would be seen as uh, something to be made fun of. But he really worked at that to the point where he and uh, Eddie Murphy got together and he could understand that it was a way of joking at probably, maybe hopefully they got a little less mean and a little bit more loving in their humor. He would use his friends as a way of helping him understand the issues that he was challenged with. I was deeply honored to be one of those people. Having him in my life was very, very foundational to who I aspire to be. Ellen, how can people find out more about the work you're doing? People can find out about my work by going to mindinthemaking.org, by looking at the book, Mind in the Making, by going to any of the free resources that we offer through Families and Work Institute, and our website is familiesandwork.org, and then just Googling me. I find that all of those speeches you give live on on the air, so they can check those out if they're interested or just get in touch with me directly. I'm happy to answer any questions. And Ellen, before we go, we have just one more question for you. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I ask children a similar question. I ask them what's the most important parenting skill. These are adolescents. And they said, listen more than you talk. So I think if we become, in your words, curious about our children and respectful of what they're seeing and feeling, what their world is, if we have good perspective-taking skills, if we can pause our lives, if we can make connections, if they're interested in something, build on it and extend it. But it all starts with listening. Thanks again to Ellen Galinsky, the co-founder and president of the Families and Work Institute, the Chief Science Officer at the Bezos Family Foundation, and the Executive Director of Mind in the Making, in addition to being author of several books. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning, a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org tomorrow.